stand with me as we rise to read this morning's sermon text together. You can turn in your Bibles, I do hope you have one, to Paul's letter, second letter to the Thessalonians. And if you don't have a Bible today, you can grab one of the chairback Bibles that should be nearby or in front of you, and you'll find this morning's text on page 989. It seemed natural to just continue from 1 Thessalonians, it ended last week, right into 2 Thessalonians, and We trust it will take us about five weeks, maybe perhaps six, to get through the three chapters that are before us in this letter. And what we want to do to start our study through this second letter this morning is just look at the first five verses of chapter 1. So let me read those for us and then pray for God's blessing on our study and we'll begin together. So listen now as God does speak to you through His gracious and, and perfect Word. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right, because your faith is growing abundantly, and the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God, For your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring, this is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray once again. Father, we do ask this morning that you would send your spirit among us, that he would descend upon us with mercy, with power, with truth and illumination that we might understand your word, that we might grow as your people in the ways in which you have called us to walk worthy of the kingdom that you have brought us into through faith in your son, Jesus Christ. Uh, Do help us to hear with earnestness. For me to preach with clarity, as you say, I must. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now, we don't know exactly how many months elapsed, but as best we can tell, it was only a few months between when Paul wrote his first letter to the church at Thessalonica and wrote his second letter to the church at Thessalonica. As we saw, if you've been with us in months and weeks past, considering that first letter, Uh, Paul had planted that young church. He was earnest to see it grow in Christ. He was somewhat anxious to figure out how it was faring in Jesus Christ. And so he had dispatched his protege, Timothy, to discover how things were at Thessalonica. And after hearing Timothy's report, he penned 1 Thessalonians. And then somewhere along the way, it seems like he had asked for another report about how things were then going at Thessalonica after they had received his first letter. And so sometime later... He wrote a second one, this letter full of instruction and, in some ways, correction. And we might want to ask, if that letter was first coming into your midst, what Paul has to say to us first today in his second letter. It was widely agreed that in the late 1880s and even into the 1890s that the greatest preacher in all of Scotland was a man named Alexander White. 
He had at the young age, at the time at least, it was quite young, at the age of 34, been appointed the pastor and installed at Free St. George's in Edinburgh, which was the capital. He eventually became the principal, which means something like president of the Free College Seminary uh, there in town. And he was a man that was unusually gifted in eloquence and power in his preaching. One student later said, every sermon is like a volcano and every prayer uh, a revelation. And he was a man of, of certain impulses and habits, really, that you could almost walk into Free St. George's on a Sunday and you would have an idea, perhaps, of, of how some things would go, particularly how the prayer would go. Because the people knew that uh, Dr. White was one who always was eloquent in his thanksgivings that he would return to God. And it said that on one Sunday morning when the weather was especially dark and gloomy and the clouds were ready to burst overhead, that a member walked into the church that day thinking, surely not even Dr. White has something today for which he can thank God about. And so he turned to the pastoral prayer later on in the service. And Dr. White began by saying, I thank thee, O God, that not every day is like this day. <laughs> Knowing, of course, that there are always reasons to thank God. It was within the heart of Dr. White, which was none other than the heart of the Apostle Paul, which, of course, is ultimately the heart of Jesus Christ, which is a heart that abounds in thanksgiving. That everywhere you look, it seems like in Paul's letters, he can always and only begin by speaking about Thanks, thankful reasons for what God is, is doing in the church to whom he is writing. He began First Thessalonians that way. You might glance back just a couple of pages. We saw months ago, or a few weeks ago at least, chapter 1, verse 2 of that first letter where he said, We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers. And then that thanksgiving-like prayer, we said, extended essentially out three chapters in that letter and by the end of chapter 3, we find Paul saying in verse 9, For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? Now, if you read through Paul's letters with eyes to see, you, you might find out quite quickly that it seemed as though he had this almost knee-jerk-like spiritual reaction when he would think about God's church. It was a knee-jerk-like spiritual reaction to extol God's work in a local congregation, to expound reasons for why he is grateful for what God is doing in a local church, almost as though as he walk into any local congregation that he knew or one perhaps he planted, he'd immediately begin to think of reason after reason after reason to praise God for what he was doing. Certainly, it's a convicting start perhaps even for many of you in the room today, because you walk into a local church like even our own, and it's not your natural reaction to think about, look at all of these reasons for which we can thank God today. Perhaps it's more likely that you walk in and think, well, this person's here today, or they haven't fixed this yet this month, or I really don't want to have to sing that song again. And suddenly, grumbling abounds and gratitude shrinks. And what you're going to see along the way today is our theme of a church to be thankful for. What is Paul exactly thankful about in this text? Well, we're going to see four things in particular. Faith, love, steadfastness, and justice. That's what Paul is going to express unto us today. He's thankful for faith, love, steadfastness, and justice. And I hope even by the end we might be encouraged to the same 
growth in grace, as he observed there at Thessalonica. So look again, verse 3 tells us he's thankful for faith, because after those customary greetings of verses 1 and 2, he says in verse 3, we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, as is right. And I want you to notice two things about his thanksgiving there in just the first part of verse 3, the first of which is thanksgiving is constant. We always give thanks to God for you. I have a friend in my life, and I'm sure many of you have such a friend, that is infatuated with a particular sports team. And so anytime you you meet this person, the conversation eventually and always seems to get to the point where he's talking about said sports team. You know, his eyes light up, his diction begins even to race in velocity as he talks faster, as he expounds on everything going on in the current events and affairs of his sports team. And I think the Apostle Paul must have been like that when it came to Christ's church. Again, the many of these he had planted unique relationships with. He would suddenly be in a conversation, perhaps if you visited him in the first century, and just began to talk and converse with the Apostle Paul. And it wouldn't be long, it seems, though, into that conversation before his eyes would light up. His, his speech would begin to race as he talked about what God was doing in local churches throughout Asia Minor, local churches throughout the known Roman world at the time, because Christ's Spirit was moving in power. Christ's Spirit was, was moving in noticeable prominence. So he's always giving thanks because he's always, seeing, always noticing reasons for why he can give thanks to God. But you'll see also he doesn't just say his thanks is constant. He says in verse 3, it's also correct. He says, we ought always to give thanks to God for you as is right. It's noticeably different than the way he begins the first letter, where he simply says, we always are thanking God for you in our prayers. But now he says, we are always thanking God for you in our prayers, which is what we ought to do. And so people have wondered, what is it perhaps that changed from the first letter to the second letter, where Paul seems to have to defend in his own mind why he's giving thanks in this way. So some have suggested maybe it's true that when that first letter came to the church there at Thessalonica, that his grateful language was so effusive and so constant that it made even some of the Thessalonians uncomfortable because they're like, well, we know our own hearts and we're really not that great of a local church. And it had gotten back to Paul and he says, no, it's right for me to say this about you. Or perhaps even it extended this effusive praise into the broader Thessalonica community, and they were saying that Paul was nothing more than a flatterer. Uh, Flattery, which is a distinguishing mark of, of a false teaching. Whatever the reason is, Paul says, it's right. I ought to give thanks for what God is doing there in your midst, among you, and through you, and in you. And his first reason for thanks is their faith. You see verse 3 continues. We ought always to give thanks to God for you because your faith is growing abundantly. Growing abundantly, it's one word in the original. It means something like growing beyond measure. It's this word picture that paints the internal life-giving power that belongs to a plant or a tree as it just kind of continues to grow and to grow and increase and increase. The first house that Emil and I bought, it had one tree in the front yard. It was a sycamore tree. And if you had taken a picture of when we moved in that first day to when we moved out six years later, 
a picture of the front yard, you would have seen that some things changed in minor ways or different flowers and different plants along the way in the various beds and parts of the garden. But what certainly would immediately strike into your mind is the size to which that tree had grown in six years, that despite all of my trimming prowess and power, by the end of six years, it almost swallowed up the entire vision of the front yard as it just grew wider and taller and longer and and bigger. And that's what Paul is saying is happening with the Thessalonians' faith. It's growing deeper. It's growing larger. It's growing higher. It's growing taller. And students, you need to recognize that faith, as it's directed towards God, it's not this static thing. Sometimes people can think about faith as though I wish I had faith like you, in the same way we might think of, I wish I had that skill to perform that trade. Uh, But here it's this trust-filled, living, dynamic relationship with God that many of you know, don't you? It can increase. It can decrease. It can ebb. It can flow. And Paul is thankful that there in the church of Thessalonica, it is growing beyond measure. How about your own faith? That seed of faith planted in your heart, that conversion, has it grown up into something like a tree, stretching forth branches into your life, full of tree-like foliage and leaves, fruits of the Spirit? Well, he's thankful for their faith. You'll see, secondly, he's thankful for love. Verse 3 continues, we ought always to give thanks to God for you because the love of every one of you for one another is increasing. It's important to underscore the totality of the love he mentions there. The love every one of you has for everyone else in the church. I wonder if you might be able to say that with a clean conscience. I love every single person in this place today. You probably wouldn't be able to say that. Perhaps for understandable reasons. I just don't know everybody in the room here today. It's relational ignorance. But you know as well as I do, perhaps it's past struggles, it's relational strife that can often quench the love that you have for God's people. And we always need to remember, don't we, that this love for one another, particularly for the saints in God's church, is a love that proves that we love God, we cannot love Christ without loving the church. That's why Paul will say in 1 John chapter 4, if anyone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. I wonder sometimes if many churches are like Bilbo Baggins at his 111st birthday. Or he simply says in this pithy way but somewhat confusing way, he says, I I know half or less than half of you than I would like. And I like more than half of you than you deserve. And sometimes in the church, we think, here's the segment of the church that I know and thus love. Here's the segment of the church that I don't know, or perhaps I do know and have a hard time loving. Paul's thankful that every single church member there at Thessalonica, he's saying loves every other church member. Calling for patience, isn't it? Forbearance, steadfastness with one another. He's thankful for faith. He's thankful for love. You see in verse 4, thirdly, he's thankful for steadfastness. 
I recently came across this eloquent article by a journalist and sometimes marathoner named Art Carey. He had published an article in the Philadelphia Inquirer years ago recounting his experience in having just run, yet again, uh, the Boston Marathon. And somewhere towards the end of the article, he begins to talk about his emotions, his physical exertion, frankly, his exhaustion that struck around mile 20. And here's what he said, by now... The rigors of having run nearly 20 miles are beginning to tell. My stride has shortened. My legs are tight. My breathing is shallow and fast. My joints are becoming raw and worn. My neck aches from all the jolts that have ricocheted up my spine. Half-dollar-sized blisters sting the holes of my feet. I'm beginning to feel queasy and lightheaded. I want to stop running. I have hit the wall. You don't even have to be a runner to know that experience. You might be in here today and think of your life spiritually. I've, I've run up against the wall. I can't keep going anymore. Maybe it's the disappointment you've faced in recent weeks, months, perhaps even years. Maybe it's the discouragement that continues to flow into your life, opposition that you face along the way in your place of employment or the calling to which God has put you. But you know that, of course, life in Jesus Christ means it is a marathon. It's a race you must finish. And so, Art Carey continues speaking about his finish of this race. Finally, getting close to that 26-mile point, the distinctive profile of the Prudential Building looms on the horizon. I begin to step up my pace. I can see the yellow stripe 50 yards ahead. I run faster, pumping my arms, pushing off my toes, defying clutching leg cramps to mount a glorious last-gasp kick Cheers and clapping, 10 yards, finish line, an explosion of euphoria. I have run the best marathon of my life. And while times and places are important, breaking a personal record is thrilling. He ends by saying the real joy of the Boston Marathon is just finishing. We know from God's word that he has called us in Christ Jesus to run a race, that we must finish. And what it's going to take to finish is exertion, endurance through the exhaustion, which is why Paul and we ought to be thankful wherever we see such perseverance and steadfastness in the race of the Christian life appearing. Notice verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions, in the afflictions that you are enduring. A student should recognize that, of course, Paul uses two words to speak about the hardship, and they're not the same in the original intent. He's got persecutions and afflictions. Persecutions, in the way he means, it's very specific. It's the kind of bodily harm that seems to be coming to the Thessalonians because of their faith in Jesus Christ. Persecution that produces bodily harm. Now, afflictions is more general. It actually has this idea of of pressure. These kind of broad pains that so often belong to the Christian life and in following God's Son. So kids, you might think about it in this way. If someone was to come up to you after the service and begin to press their hands down upon your shoulders, this pressure would increase, wouldn't it? And what your body would want to do is suddenly begin to bend over, to shrink in many ways. And the word there for enduring is just a word that simply means essentially stand up. That amidst all of the pressure, all of the pain that so often belongs to the Christian life, what we're thankful for is when people are not shrinking, but they are standing up because of their continued trust in Jesus Christ. 
And I'm sure most of you in here today experiencing pressure. That is wanting your heart to shrink. That's wanting your soul to lean over because you just can't stand up. But the good news of Jesus Christ is that he's given you his spirit that helps you endure. That helps you remain steadfast in suffering. That helps you persevere through persecution. Because you must finish the race that he has called you to in Jesus Christ. And it's that finishing evidence we turn to now in his fourth reason. Thankful for justice, not just faith, love, and steadfastness. Thankful for justice, verse 5. If your Bible is anything like mine, you probably have something like a paragraph break, perhaps even a heading between verse 4 and 5. That's where our modern way of publishing Bibles is entirely unhelpful. Uh, Because verse 3 through verse 12, it's all one connected thought. And we're going to see even in many ways, verse 5 is clearly connected to verse 4, which is why we're thinking about it today. But it's also connected to verse 6 through 12, which is why we're going to think about it again next week. And verse 5 simply offers what appears at an initial glance to be almost a stunning statement. Look at what he says. This is evidence of the righteous judgment of God, that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which you are also suffering. Now, students, when you read a passage like this, you want to be a good Bible student and ask questions like, well, what is this evidence? Okay, so he's clearly referring to something he's just mentioned. So is it, in verse 4, just the simple reality of persecutions, the very presence of hardship? Or, which is the right way to take it, is it referring to their steadfastness in the suffering as proof of God's righteous judgment? Because that's what he's saying. Their steadfastness in suffering is proof of God's righteous justice. Well, what does that mean? Well, what you need to recognize, whenever the Bible talks about God's judgment in this way, it's always talking about something that comes to us in two ways. That God's judgment is going to fall upon the earth and it's going to do two things. Number one, it's going to bring the vindication of God's people. And number two, the condemnation of God's enemies. And you want to keep those categories in place because it's really here, this week we're thinking about the first part. It's the vindication of God's people. But then as verse 6 through 9 continue on, Lord willing, next week, it now kind of turns to the condemnation of God's enemies. That at the final judgment, God is going to vindicate his people, that they truly belong to him. And how is he going to show that? But through his people evidencing fruits of the faith that he put into their hearts. Fruits of faith. That include perseverance under persecution. All he's simply saying is that the Thessalonians' suffering, it provides evidence that God is righteous in having already admitted them into his kingdom. Since their willingness to endure persecution shows that their faith is bearing fruits that, of course, show their justification. And you understand how this works out. It's those who are truly called in Jesus Christ that they have this almost mystifying, mystical perseverance through hardship. That doesn't make sense to a world that always shrinks back when things get hard. Think about how it often worked out in the apostles' life. Even using language from the end of verse 5, being counted worthy through the sufferings that God brought their way, that they might show that He 
not worldly comfort, is their supreme treasure. That he, not worldly approval, is their supreme delight. So there's a similar way in which Acts chapter 5 speaks about this. Uh, You might remember the text that's there that the apostles are preaching and teaching Jesus Christ to such a degree of power and success that the Sadducees, they were very frustrated and frankly envious of everything that was happening with the apostolic ministry of the day. So they gathered up the apostles, they interrogated them, told them you can't preach Jesus Christ anymore, they threw them into prison. If you know the story, that night the Lord's angel leads a jailbreak. And they get out of prison, and they immediately go back, the text says, to preaching the words of life. So the next day, when they discover that they're not in the prison, but instead they're preaching, they bring them back into their midst, they interrogate them, why are you doing what we said you ought not to do? And they simply said, well, that's what God has called us to do. So after the interrogation, they beat them and released them and said, don't preach about Jesus anymore. If you know the story, you know that the chapter ends with, this word from Acts 5.41, Then the apostles left the presence of the council, rejoicing that they were counted worthy to suffer the dishonor of the name of Jesus Christ. This is evidence of the righteousness of God. Your perseverance through persecution, your steadfastness in suffering, that he has counted you worthy of his kingdom. Is your life in any way showing evidence of a true and living faith. True believers will be able to point to ways in which the Spirit is growing fruits of the Spirit in their life. Maybe you can look back in recent months and years and say, well, no, my faith doesn't seem to have grown at all. I don't really love God's people. When things get hard, I'd much rather tap out than continue on. Perhaps it's God's kindness to you today to help you understand maybe you truly haven't come to Jesus Christ in faith. Because all of his people, if they truly belong to him, they will have these fruits of faith and and love and steadfastness that evidence God's justice. And these are things for which the Apostle Paul is thankful in this tiny little local church. A few weeks ago, One of my cousins was down in the area, and he happened to stay with us for a few days. And It's been a number of years since we've had any opportunity to really kind of catch up at length. And Since he was with us for a long time, there was just lots of wonderful conversations we were able to have and kind of learn what God was doing in his life. And Somewhere along the way, in one of the conversations, he was telling me about a friend of his that has become something in a certain subculture of a YouTube sensation because he has this YouTube channel where he builds dioramas and models. And millions of people watch him do that, building ships and Star Wars scenes and other planes along the way. And I was rather miffed by such a thing, being able to be such a phenomenon. And so he pulled up the page and we we watched one model being built. And it was, it was altogether impressive, but what stood out to me is that, of course, without these very tiny and significant instruments, the, the model wouldn't have been created. And Paul has told us already in the first letter to the church at Thessalonica that the Thessalonians are a model church, that they're exemplary. But what he's continuing to show us along the way in his instruction is that there are certain instruments and there are certain ingredients that are necessary for them being a model church. And I want to consider a couple of those as we begin to close. What's necessary for this church, apparently vital for this young congregation to be so full of faith 
love and steadfastness. Well, number one, uh, what we see is a theology of suffering. Churches need a theology of suffering. It's why he can say to the church at Philippi, Paul can, using almost the exact same words as verse 5. You can look at it, verse 27, 28, and 29 of Philippians chapter 1. He's essentially saying God has graced you with suffering, that you might show that you belong to him, and that as you persevere in your persecution, this will lead to the destruction of your enemies. A church needs to know, kids and students, you need to know that life in Jesus Christ is glorious and blessed but it is often very, very hard. I was talking recently at a seminary class with some of the students about the need to be dependent and humble in your preaching. And I told them, you need to learn this lesson. You must be dependent in your preaching because if God's truly called you to be a pastor, he will either grow that dependence within you just through the ordinary work of the Spirit or he will make you be dependent through suffering and hardship and affliction. And if you likewise belong to Jesus Christ, you will learn what it means to trust him in the midst of hardship. Perhaps as you just observe it in the lives of others, or perhaps he's going to bring that kind of affliction and suffering that you may be brought to the end of yourself so that you can rely only on the Spirit to sustain you through whatever the suffering might be. Because true Christian churches, of course, don't race towards suffering, but they're those who don't run from it when it arrives. Every church, if it's going to be one for which an apostle can be thankful for, needs a theology of suffering. Number two, it needs the priority of perseverance. The priority of perseverance. If you look back at verse 4, you'll see that it's not just he's boasting about the Thessalonians' perseverance to them. He's saying he's boasting about it in the churches of God. This is being published throughout the presbytery, the perseverance of the Thessalonians. And what a different way it is than at least compared to how many of our churches today go about their boasting work. He's like a proud parent noticing the progress of his child, and he says, I'm proud in your perseverance. You talk to ordinary church leaders and church members today, and isn't it true that you can so often find statements like, we boast in our buildings, the number of bodies that show up on a Sunday, how many baptisms we had last year, the Radical increase in our missionary budgetary giving. Here Paul says, I want to boast in the perseverance of God's people. That shows that they have indeed been called into Christ's kingdom. So what do we need? We need a theology of suffering. We need to know the priority of perseverance. Finally, we need the simplicity of the gospel. Don't race too fast by those greetings in verse 1 and 2. You see, just verse 1, he says he's writing this to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. It is almost identical to the greeting he gave in 1 Thessalonians. But here there's one word that Paul has used differently. There he said to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Here now it's in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. A true Christians need, don't they, the definite article and that personal pronoun. He's not just the Father. He is. But he's our Father. And what did the Thessalonians have? We know from other letters in the New Testament, they didn't have any money. They didn't have any programs, ministries, clear visionary statements of strategic outreach. But they had all that they needed. 
the ministry of the gospel that gives them Jesus Christ. It's faith in Jesus Christ that has brought them life in God our Father and in His Son, Jesus Christ. As the church understands its role in suffering, understands the necessity of perseverance, that glorious simplicity that belongs to the gospel, what you will find in local congregations even like our own, faith, love, steadfastness, growing faith, love, steadfastness, that give evidence to God's calling, His just righteousness in our lives. Let's pray together. Father, we do simply pray that you would increase in our hearts our affection for your Son, that our faith in him might grow, that our love for his people might grow, and that our steadfastness in the midst of troubles and trials would always increase as well. Thank you that you have called us in Christ Jesus, and we long always to be a church for which your servants can be thankful. Continue to grow within us that heart of gratitude as we want to always remember, reflect on, and renew our gratitude towards you for even what you have done at Redeemer over recent years, decades, and this church's life. Do keep us faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's stand together.